We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. So happy to be here. The 24th happiest in the world. There you go. We'll get there in a minute, though. You'll jump in a gun. Anyway, tonight we'll be discussing a U.S. representative proposing adding Taiwan mm. to the NATO Plus group of states. Reports that Japan is ready to help the U.S. defend Taiwan in the event of a conflict with China. The government eyeing a resumption of cross-strait travel ties. A new proposal on cross-strait ties by former Vice President Annette Liu. Government plans to boost the economy with an increased infrastructure budget. And the world happiness rankings, making Taiwan the happiest place in East. Asia. But we'll begin with the coronavirus. And the Central Epidemic Command Centre rolled out its AstraZeneca vaccine inoculation programme on Monday of this week, with Premier Su Jung Chung and Health Minister Chen Shih Jong among the first to be vaccinated when they rolled up at the National Taiwan University Hospital in Taipei for their vaccination at around 7.45am on Monday. Now, speaking to reporters at the time, the Health Minister said that he and the Premier opted to be the first to receive the inoculation in order to reassure the public about the vaccine's safety. Now, although the vaccination procedure was not open to reporters, the Cabinet and the Epidemic Command Centre released video footage and photographs of both Sue and Chen receiving their shots later in the day. Now, since the coronavirus vaccine began to be rolled out, apparently some 5,000 people have been administered with their first shot, with health authorities saying that mostly, most of them are basically medical personnel who work at hospitals that treat coronavirus patients. However, apparently some 10 athletes or so who represent Taiwan in international sporting competitions have also been inoculated. Mm. Now, while there have been reports about reactions to the inoculation, apparently health officials say they've all been pretty much okay. There was a nurse who was inoculated on Wednesday. She was hospitalised, but apparently she was released on Thursday morning and she's now OK. Anyway, lawmakers on Wednesday announced the pending establishment of a special legislative committee to review government data on the purchase of more coronavirus vaccines. Now, that move came after lawmakers from the KMT and other opposition parties had been arguing that the government has failed so far to inform the Legislative UN about its vaccine purchase plan. The proposal to establish the committee was originally voted on by members of the Legislature's Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee on March the 18th. However, the DPP voted to revoke that decision on March the 22nd, citing procedural flaws. Now, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong has argued that disclosing the price paid to procure the coronavirus vaccines or when they're expected to be delivered to Taiwan could jeopardise ongoing negotiations with potential future vaccine providers due to confidentiality agreements. And, of course, then there were reports from Paraguay this week regarding moves by Chinese business owners there to act as coronavirus vaccine brokers if Ascension severs diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing. Now, the foreign ministry here in Taiwan responded to those reports saying access to a vaccine is a humanitarian issue and, well, basically they shouldn't be used as a tool for political manipulation. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu also came out and he stressed that ties between Taipei and Ascension remain unaffected. So, Brian, of course, the Premier and the Health Minister there having their first shots of the vaccine bright and early on Monday morning. But, of course, no cameras were allowed in there live on TV, which I thought was a bit odd. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, this is a move intended to show that the vaccine is safe, that the premier and the minister of health are willing to take it and they would take it first. Uh, so this was advised by specialists, just that this is the best way of outreach. Um, but then, of course, there will be the conspiracy theories claiming that, oh, they didn't really get it. Netsu and uh, Chen actually just did not get it. And it was all staged. Um, that, that just happens. And so this is one of those things, I guess, about misinformation, disinformation during the coronavirus pandemic uh, and questions of how to reassure the public. And so, so oftentimes having uh, politicians take the shot, that's the way to reassure. But but there will be conspiracy theories. Or maybe people will point to, for example, that President Tsai has not taken the vaccine yet uh, to suggest that, oh, well, there's maybe some cause for that. Um, when asked about the spokespersons for Tsai, said that it would be more meaningful for Tsai to take a domestically produced vaccine, which indicates that uh, the importance that the, the Tsai administration currently places on using domestically produced vaccines to have enough supply for Taiwan currently, that they would wait for Tsai to take it. But I think there will always be these kind of conspiracy theories, unfortunately. I think you know, we should all be disappointed about the lack of uh, video photo. There, there's nothing to hide. Other leaders around the world, heads of government, heads of state, have done this publicly with the video. And they did it to um, not, not, not just prove that they've been vaccinated, but to inspire confidence in the general public and the safety of the vaccine. There, there's really just uh, no excuse for this. And frankly, I'm, I'm very disappointed that President Tsai was not the first person. I don't think anyone in the public would begrudge the president for being the first or one of the first uh, persons in Taiwan to be vaccinated publicly. Uh, uh, she has to do her job and she needs to uh, be safe and healthy. So, uh, again, I, I don't think anyone would say that she was jumping the queue, especially since the premier uh, apparently was one of the first to get it. Uh, so poor, poor performance here. I, I think generally the public in Taiwan is uh, not, not a believer in the conspiracy theories and generally are, are open to uh, frankly, taking whatever the medical professionals give them, since anyone who's been to the doctor's office in Taiwan knows uh, usually you leave there with a bag full of multicolored pills of uh, you know, dubious explanations. They just tell you to take, take one of this, one of that, one more of that, and uh, make sure you take all of them. Uh, so we're, we're pretty used to being uh, over-pharmaceutical, if, if, that, if I could <laughs> use that word, uh, here in Taiwan. So again, I don't think there's much uh, fear of the vaccine. Uh, I think the government, frankly, on this one, you just blew it. But of course, Brian, they did inoculate some athletes. Yeah, that's right. Um, there are plans to inoculate Olympic athletes because uh, for to be sent to Tokyo for the uh, 2020 Olympics, which are still happening and now, despite 2020 being passed, um, because of the fact that they might contract the uh, COVID-19. And so that's it's another attempt to, to I think, keep people safe. Um, but then perhaps some people would criticize that too, saying that medical professionals should be the ones to get it first. And so that Olympic vaccines, this is uh, vaccines for Olympic athletes, this is not absolutely necessary. Um, what's interesting to me is that there hasn't been the kind of fear regarding the AstraZeneca vaccine the way there has been uh, elsewhere in the world, particularly the fear that it could cause blood clots. This has led to the suspension of the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in some places. Uh, but then, you know, later on, the European Union uh, resumed use of the vaccine. Um, this hasn't become really widely discussed in Taiwan, and so that's kind of surprising to me. I think the media would often seize upon this thing with a lot of uh, kind of fear mongering. Of course, Ross, there were some issues, apparently, because the, the Central Epidemic Command Centre did come out this week and say, well, you know, there's been about eight incident, incidences, instances, that's the word I'm looking for, of people having very minor reactions to it. Well, minor reactions, uh, which don't rise to the level of seriousness that Brian was just referring to, uh, that's normal to, to a lot of inoculations. And I think uh, most people 
understand that and it doesn't necessarily cause any any panic. Uh, so eight you know, seems like a, a normal number. Uh, uh, those of us uh, who've had family in, in other countries and friends in other countries who've been inoculated by one of the COVID-19 vaccines have probably heard firsthand uh, stories that have ranged from uh, just feeling a bit tired or uh, an arm hurt for a few hours to people who did have more serious reactions and may have felt a bit exhausted for, for several days. Again, th- this is pretty normal with, with vaccines. I, I don't think it'll cause any great fear or panic. What, what will cause annoyance in, in the public, and I'll just reiterate this point again, is a lack of transparency. So why couldn't the government leaders be filmed? Why hasn't the president uh, been vaccinated? Or are they going to tell us like uh, you know, a press release uh, mid-morning today? Today or next week that, oh, she had it. Uh, you know, she went to the hospital very, very quietly, no media, no to-do, and she got it done. And I, I just don't understand the reason for that. And, and frankly, the delay. So other countries uh, that have been able to acquire vaccines. That, that goes to the point uh, you mentioned earlier, Gavin, about, oh, we can't disclose any details because uh, you know, it might jeopardize the negotiations. Let's be frank. That, that's a lot of junk, okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm being polite because there's another word I'd rather use. Uh, starts with a B and the second uh, word is an S. Uh, you know, other countries are transparent. Uh, uh, one of the uh, interesting things about the whole creation of the vaccine, frankly, has been the level of transparency that existed uh, among amongst the uh, corporates and the governments involved around the world. There's nothing to hide here other than the fact that, frankly, despite all the good things they've done in managing COVID-19, the government up to now seems to have blown it on acquiring vaccines, and they just don't want to admit that. And of course, Brian, then we get to the legislative committee that's being formed to apparently oversee the procurement of the vaccines. Yeah, that's right. And I think that the creation of this committee and the fact that KMT called for it is reflective of how now there is criticism of the government for what is perceived as a lack of transparency. And so I think this is an issue that the KMT will leverage on heavily, uh, claiming that the government is not open and transparent enough. That is actually blowing, the, as, as Ross mentioned, the, the acquiring vaccines. And so I think this is uh, going to be the next kind of way in which COVID-19 policy in Taiwan gets uh, tested. Um, previously, they're fighting over what are the best means to prevent it from spreading. Now that we've moved to the vaccination stage, this is where people will fight over next. Um, the KMT is looking for ways to do differentiate itself from the Tsai administration. But I think it's also right that the Tsai administration could be more transparent. Um, and actually, I think the secrecy does not really help. Um, sometimes actually being open and transparent can be helpful. I think the Tsai administration is concerned, for example, about the possibility of Chinese interference. But then one looks at the BioNTech scandal and that going public with the claim that uh, Taiwan was prevented from obtaining vaccines because of Chinese interference actually helps secure assurances from BioNTech that Taiwan would be provided with vaccines as discussed uh, regarding purchasing vaccines between the you know, negotiations. And so I think actually this transparency does help. And I think there are missteps by the Tsai administration in allowing the KMT to kind of criticize it on this front, um, whether regarding, for example, just video or even just the, what, the, what the current process and timeline for acquiring vaccines is, or just what amount of what vaccine Taiwan will get. And I think having this uh, and being more transparent about it actually could allow leverage in actually obtaining vaccines. But I'm not sure why this is happening. And of course, talking about throwing China in the coronavirus mix there, Ross Paraguay. What was happening in Paraguay? Were these evil Chinese agents trying to sway Ascension to switch allegiances? It's certainly very possible. Uh, We have to uh, deal with the reality that China at some point in the coming years will persuade another one of the countries that still have formal diplomatic relations with the Republic of China to switch. Uh, maybe it didn't, it didn't happen or there wasn't much movement on that in 2020 after a few switched in, in late 2019. 
because uh, the world was busy with COVID-19, not just China, but but the other countries as well. But this is inevitable. So whether or not the, the impetus for that uh, is related to COVID-19 or other issues, this shouldn't be a surprise. So I, I think the, the government here could spare us you know, the shocked reaction and just deal with the reality. I mean, if, if Paraguay uh, or some other country is going to try and get the best deal possible, whether it's vaccines or uh, other types of development assistance, and whether and they're going to try and play Taiwan and China off of each other, it's not new. Uh, we've been here before, uh, so it's it's certainly very possible. But uh, as as a country that has not acquired much in the way of vaccines and certainly hasn't done so speedily itself, it's not clear what uh, Taiwan could offer Paraguay or the other uh, countries that have diplomatic relations in this regard. Uh, I mean, we could send some more masks since Taiwan's been pretty good at that. But uh, if, if people in Paraguay want to take the, the Chinese vaccine, if they have confidence in it, there's been questions raised around the world about that. But you know, that's their business. And uh, if they think that the, the cost, the price is to switch relations again, I mean, we, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to insult them, you know, get mad at them like we've gotten mad at the other countries that switch diplomatic relations. I think we just have to move on. I, I'd hate to see the Taiwan government wastefully spend money on, on something that in the end might turn out to be a bad deal for Taiwan. Because again, we've seen that before, where uh, even in the months or, or, or the years before a switch was made, Taiwan was still uh, providing a lot of assistance. And, and basically, Taiwan, in the end, uh, really got screwed. Moving on now, and U.S. Representative Scott Perry this week proposed a bill to the U.S. Congress to include Taiwan in the NATO Plus Five countries. Now, the proposed legislation is aptly titled Taiwan Plus Act. Now, it was introduced in the House of Representatives on March the 19th and has since been referred to the House Foreign Affairs Committee for review. The bill notes that support for defence cooperation with Taiwan is critical to the national security of the United States and urges that Taiwan be included in the so-called NATO Plus group. Now, according to Perry, Taiwan has been treated as a major non-NATO ally since 2003, although it's not formally designated as such. And the bill cites close US-Taiwan ties as one of the reasons for the proposed designation, noting that Taiwan is the 10th largest trading partner of the United States and was the largest buyer of US arms in 2020 and the third largest between 1950 and last year. The NATO Plus group currently includes Japan, Australia, South Korea, Israel and New Zealand and its members are drawn from the 17 countries the United States has designated as major non-NATO allies. So Brian, do you see sort of Taiwan becoming a NATO Plus group member or do you think maybe... Japan, Australia, South Korea, Israel, and New Zealand might have something to say about that. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I think there's always these uh, propositions to somehow boost uh, Taiwan's membership in in these tr treaty alliances or to otherwise have more assurances for security from America. They get proposed sometimes in Congress and or just uh, floated to the public, and it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just hypothetical. And I think this is perhaps that example. Um, NATO, I think, um, you know, is is searching for a purpose in this kind of post Cold War paradigm as we enter quote unquote a new Cold War. And so one of the propositions has to actually uh, have more focus on Asia, North Atlantic Treaty, or 
Organization is the name of the alliance, but it does include North American and European countries. And so the question is then, would expanding to Asia be the next frontier? Um, and I think that in searching for a reason to continue to exist, that makes sense for NATO. But at the same time, I think this is just hypothetical. One expects, for example, differences between NATO member states regarding uh, Taiwan's membership, like views on that, uh, particularly in Europe between, let's say, uh, Western Europe and Central Europe, um, which face different uh, assessments regarding China. And for example, something like the uh, CAI, the, the free trade deal with China that has been controversial among different uh, European countries. And so that's, that's between the EU and China. And so one expects similar factor lines in this proposition to include Taiwan and alliance along with European countries. And so I think it's an idea floated and the side mission would like it, but it's probably not going to get too far. Not going to get too far is probably probably Brian being very generous because this is more likely uh, dead on arrival. You know, it's something that makes members of Congress feel good that they're doing something for Taiwan. Taiwan government uh, might might also or probably will react positively, but absent any buy-in from uh, NATO or the other NATO partners that countries that were mentioned, then like I said, this is this is dead on arrival, and, and uh, in a way, it's kind of unfortunate because it it takes time away from uh, practical actions that countries could be doing, uh, not just the United States, but some of the countries that were mentioned might might do uh, certain initiatives on a bilateral basis with Taiwan, uh, but this kind of uh, action is just going to waste a lot of time, especially if uh, we wind up having hearings in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, even if it were to pass the House and the Senate, uh, you know, would, would, would the president sign it? Uh, if, if Maybe because it might pass veto proof, so then the president is obligated to sign it because a veto would be overridden, but uh, with no interest or from the other uh, countries, whether the NATO countries or the partners, um, this is just a waste of time. And of course, Ross, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Monday of this week thanked Japan after Japanese media reported that, well, Tokyo's defence minister said that Japan is studying the feasibility of helping the United States defend Taiwan in the event of a cross-strait crisis. Now, but did they really say this is the question, Ross. Did this actually get said or did Kyoto News just sort of make something a little bit bigger than it actually was? I'm sure every time the United States defense officials meet the Japanese defense officials, they talk about various scenarios, whether it's uh, conflict, uh, armed conflict over the Diaoyutai, armed conflict on the Korean Peninsula, conflict in the South China Sea, and of course, conflict in the Taiwan Strait and the various scenarios of of China taking military action uh, against Taiwan and whether that would include uh, the U.S. assistance from uh, U.S. military facilities in Japan. I mean, this is just a no-brainer that they would discuss that. So, of course, they discussed it. Uh, there's there's nothing new here. I, I think Kyoto um, was uh, taking a, a bit of poetic license with the way they reported uh, something that is is very obviously discussed. Uh, yeah, then, you know, like, like other things we were talking about today, I mean, it gets people excited. It gets government officials here in Taiwan excited. It gets a bunch of scholars in the United States or Taiwan excited. A bunch of talking heads like us get excited. And a bunch of people brag how they participate in track 1.5 or 2, 2.9378 talks between Japan and Taiwan and how they helped uh, uh, persuade Japan to come to Taiwan's aid. Um, but uh, what, what, we could talk about this for a long time, but uh, ultimately, uh, just like with NATO, if there's no buy-in from the Japanese public on this, I don't think Japanese politicians are going to commit uh, Japan to providing uh, any type of military assistance to Taiwan in the event of a conflict with China.
Yeah, it's uh, one of those things because was, uh, actually there is no commitment. There's the will- they said they would be willing to cooperate, um, but when these scenarios get brought up as as they do, I don't think the U.S. and Japan ever say no. We're not going to cooperate. I think they would always say they were going to cooperate. And so the question is, what more meaningful th- what thing would happen after this? That's the real question then, and where there might be something substantive.、Um, I think it's interesting because particularly under the LDP in Japan, there's been the push to、uh, first reinterpret the Japanese constitution to allow for、uh, mutual defense.、Uh, for example, intervening to defend allies. Of Japan, and this was a push by the Abe administration. It was not successful, but this has been a long-standing ideological aim of the LDP. And Taiwan actually is possibly an issue that they could leverage on for this because of the fact that Taiwan is popular in Japan. It is viewed as an ally,、um, as having you know, their positive views of Taiwan because of the massive amount of aid after Fukushima. And so, using this can be one way to kind of、uh, smooth the try to push to actually reinterpret Article Nine of the Japanese Constitution per se, something like that.、Um, and this is something that the the conservatives of Japan have wanted for a long time.、Uh, there are reports. That are、uh, there are increasingly consensus between the so-called pro-Taiwan and pro-Beijing wings of the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan, the LDP.、Um, but will this actually kind of move towards something more substantive? That is the question now. And so I think it's interesting that this, at least, that this idea has been introduced into the discourse now. But the question, the real question, is: is will there be something more substantive after this? Because this in itself doesn't actually mean anything, and it's and it can be it can just be seen as a, a kind of story that popped up the news. And staying with China-Taiwan issues, but in a civilian sort of sense, Mainland Affairs Council. Minister Chou Tai-san on Monday announced that the government is studying the possibility of gradually resuming travel between Taiwan and China. He's also urging Beijing to follow suit. Now, according to Chou, his office will continue to evaluate the possibility of a phased return to normal cross-strait travel, and that evaluation will be undertaken in concert with other government agencies. And speaking at a legislative hearing, Chou said the ongoing evaluation is examining existing laws and measures put in place to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. And of course, Brian Taiwan. Did reopen its borders to Chinese students, and it's recently reopened its borders to Chinese business people. Mm, that's right, and the borders were closed for quite a long time, and so that led to,、uh, for example, some contestation regarding the issue, saying that the Tsai administration was discriminating against Chinese, for example, particularly regards to students or spouses and so forth.、Um, you know, this issue has come up a few times in the course of the pandemic, also with regards to、uh, children who do not hold Taiwanese citizenship but have a Taiwanese parent.、Um, it also doesn't surprise, I think, that particularly with、uh, borders was opening up in some sense, or as the world starts to get vaccinated, Tsai,、uh, the Tsai administration would look to China as a, a place to kind of reopen borders to because of business. Uh, the mass amount of business that Taiwan does with China, but then, of course there are the national security concerns, and the question is, would China actually allow for this? Um, it's it's one of those things. I think China probably, if it is smart, it would because because、uh, businessmen that do business between Taiwan and China sometimes use people on behalf of China.、Um, Tio Tai San is also perceived as much more a moderate, and so his appointment to head of the Mainland Affairs Council was seen as an olive branch of Beijing. I think this too is an olive branch, but the question is, will China take it? So a travel bubble, Ross, between Taiwan and China. Sorry, slow down there. I don't know what olive branch is here. I mean.、Uh... Chiu、uh, Tai says we're going to look into this. It's kind of like the Japanese saying we're going to look into defending Taiwan in the event of a conflict.、Uh, this is almost like a non-issue because、uh, Taiwan-based travelers、uh, have been able to enter China.、Uh, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. So、uh, I don't see exactly what Taiwan is asking for here.、Uh, you know, this is really Taiwan, which, uh, uh, to its credit. Uh, really locked the borders pretty tightly、uh, over a year ago, and that's not just Chinese 
inbound Chinese, but inbound foreigners and uh, for for people who are resident here, people who are citizens, still had to go through very strict uh, quarantine, contact tracing measures, et cetera, et cetera, when entering Taiwan. And that has kept the number of COVID-19 cases at an at extraordinary small level here. Uh, but uh, again, you know, Taiwan, people could go to China. They've been able to go to China subject to China's quarantine and testing um, regime. So uh, it's not clear exactly what the Taiwan government wants. I mean, if they want China to relax uh, testing and quarantine requirements on inbound travelers from Taiwan, uh, then, then just say so. Be, be clear what it is that you're asking for. Uh, but generally, Taiwan travelers can enter China subject to the testing there. So uh, if you want China to allow you know, tourists to come back to Taiwan, I mean, politically, that's probably not going to happen. I don't think there's much desire here in Taiwan other than from the tourism sector anyway uh, for, for large numbers of uh, China travelers to come here again. As far as the, the, the students, uh, again, uh, the China government is probably not going to allow many students to come to Taiwan for political reasons. So saying you're going to let students come back, we're talking about a very small number of China-based students, maybe in the middle of their program, China government won't object if they come here. And then the business people, you, you could say that that you're opening it or you're relaxing it, but believe me, you know, just based on professional experience, what this means is the, the Taiwan government's going to impose, a, a, they say, yes, you could come, but here's a whole bunch of paperwork that you'll have to satisfy uh, and it'll be really difficult to comply with. Uh, and then they'll change the rules to try and make it easier uh, once business or other people complain and say, uh, it's so difficult to comply with. Uh, ultimately, I, again, it, like the students, I don't think a lot of Chinese business travelers are going to come to Taiwan in the near term. They probably don't have a need given the limited or uh, falling amount of Chinese investment in Taiwan. And of course, Brian, if if Beijing did suddenly say, "Okay, we're going to re- we're going to cut down the quarantine time for Taiwanese travelers," would the government then scream "trap"? Uh, that's a question then, because then the ball will be in the Tide Mission's court. And I think that uh, sometimes the Tide Mission also does float ideas without actually uh, thinking they'll be realized, because it has to come off as not being the aggressor or rationally hostile towards China, but being more magnanimous. And then China seems like the one that is petty. Uh, but I do think it is actually true that sometimes it is different for Taiwanese businessmen to go to China and for Chinese businessmen to come to Taiwan. Um, there are some things that you do here that can only be done in Taiwan. It depends on what industries or investment or uh, business opportunities one is seeking. And so I think that does actually affect people. But it, you know, if you really did need to conduct a meeting, an in-person meeting, you go to go to China. Uh, but if you actually have to come here and do something, then you still have to come here. And so I think this is what it's aimed at. But I think also this idea is, in that sense, a trial balloon, along with kind of what we were discussing regarding even Japan, uh, just seeing how this idea will be received by the media. And then after that, if there are positive responses or a just kind of uh, even a lukewarm response, the government might proceed with this in some form. But if not, perhaps not. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather, rather, rather important... (laughs) 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to stay with cross-strait issues as former Vice President Annette Liu is proposing a new initiative to break the impasse between China and Taiwan by using one Chinese to replace one China and integration to supersede unification on the two sides of the Taiwan Strait. Now, Liu introduced the new third way beyond either unification with China or Taiwan independence to deal with cross-strait relations ahead of the launch of her new book. And she suggested that the Chinese authorities change its one China principle into a broader one Chinese principle, which she claimed will be more acceptable to folks here in Taiwan. Now, Lu also proposed discussions on integration in lieu of unification of the two sides of the strait, saying that's very similar to regional integration programs such as the European Union, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, and the Association of Southeast Asian States. And she's also expressing her hope that her new book will not only provide Taiwan with a new perspective on cross-strait relations, but also give Chinese people a chance to reconsider new cross-strait ties. So, where to begin with that, Brian? Yeah, it's 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 a distinction that is unfortunately negligible in English, and that's what actually matters. So, what Nelu was referring to is Zhonghua versus Zhongguo, the notion of a cultural China versus Chinese the country, and you have other concepts too, such as Huaren versus you know Zhongguoren, like just a kind of ethnic Chinese people versus Chinese, like as in the nation state, the PRC, a citizen of the PRC. Um, and so these concepts are actually very hard to pin down sometimes. For example, you can refer to someone as being part of the quote-unquote Chinese civilization that is not ethnically Han. So the Chinese government today will claim that Tibetans or Uyghurs are part of this Chinese civilization. They're part of Zhonghua, like Zhonghua Wenming. Um, but then in English, this does not matter as a distinction at all, and that's what is important. Um, you know, there's actually, it's interesting because there's actually a lot of academic work focused on trying to understand this kind of relation, just because not everyone that speaks Chinese or is quote-unquote culturally Chinese is actually has any ties to the PRC today. And so you do have, for example, a Sinophone theory that's uh, you know, kind of trying to think this issue through. But I think in this case, it's just, it just doesn't matter because this is actually international geopolitics. China and Chinese does not sound any different. Uh, but it's also one of the latest in the series of strange turns by these kind of DPP elders. I mean, you have Xi Mingde advocating that Taiwan should form some kind of alliance with China, and this is not really unification, but it sort of is, and it's also sort of still independent. And I think this with Annette Liu is just another one of these weird pipe dreams. So integration in lieu of unification, Ross. In in lieu as in Annette Liu? Yeah, I get that in there. Yeah, I, I, you picked up on that one. Yeah, I'd also like to know, similarly, who's the one Chinese she had in mind to be the leader of this one Chinese? Is she the one Chinese who, who will lead uh, this? Uh, uh, Look, this this is another one of, of the non-starters on this show. I think it's we're now up to the third one after NATO and, and, and Taiwan with NATO and, and uh, uh, Taiwan or Japan coming to Taiwan's defense. Uh, so add, add to the list of non-starters. I mean, from from the PRC's perspective, anything that is not uh, in the nature of Taiwan becoming a, a province, perhaps a special administrative region like Hong Kong, but uh, we know the one country, two systems formula has a few flaws, to say the least, especially recently. Uh, anything that sh that, that's not Taiwan becoming a province or a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China is not something that Ta uh, China is going to talk about. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll talk about 92 consensus kind of framework, uh, you know, sort of a return to uh, the Mangzhou era uh, as a way at least to interact. But but other than that, uh, come on, the Taiwan government is not going to accept Annette proposal uh, and then uh, go talk to China about it. China's not going to accept it and say, let's talk to Taiwan about it. So uh, 
you know, she could keep coming up with various uh, frameworks that are broadly federation of some sort, uh, but uh, it's really complex for the public. I don't think the public uh, is particularly interested either, um, and nor are the two governments. So good luck with your book, uh, former Vice President uh, Liu. Uh, good luck with your uh, neutrality referendum, which you've been uh, proposing for a number of years, which has also not captured uh, the imagination or the support of the public. Uh, and uh, we'll move on with the usual China-Taiwan tensions. Just because, of course, Brian, the Taiwan should become the Switzerland of Asia disappeared right. quite shortly after it, she mentioned it, yeah? Yeah, and that seems kind of mutually... I don't, it doesn't seem to really cohere with this, but it just seems like a lot of, another one of these weird pipe chains. But what's really funny to me about this idea is that, you know, 1990 consensus, one China, quote-unquote, respective interpretations. And so this sounds kind of like that, you know, that Taiwan could be a, quote-unquote, Chinese cultural democracy or Chinese language democracy or whatever. It sounds a little like that notion even. And so it's kind of like even caught in a time warp, I feel like, this idea. It's like with Chinese identity on the decline, even mutual Taiwanese and Chinese identity on the decline, it seems really out of step with the present, actually. Maybe maybe 20 years ago, this idea would have a little more traction, but even then. But I think in 20 years ago, Ross... Well, I mean, let's say say 25. (laughs) wouldn't have been talking about Chinese. That's true. Well, 20 years ago, uh, she was the vice president uh, and already... Uh, pursuing her policy agenda, which was not necessarily aligned with President Chen's <laughs> <laughs> agenda, and there were always some tensions there. Even though he kept her on the on the ticket for for their second term, uh, you know, maybe she'll run again for mayor uh, in twenty twenty two, since that's also her habit. And she could propose that Taipei City uh, be, be in be in a, integrated or unified with New Taipei, something like that. Exactly. Yes, they could have a federation, very much like ASEAN or or organization of American states or the other multilateral organizations she mentioned. But, you know, the funny thing about her her reference to those multilateral organizations is the member countries uh, all maintain their their sovereignty, uh, even if they cooperate on or they have these forums to potentially cooperate on climate change or trade or other issues. Uh, So, again, any any idea uh, that she proposes where Taiwan maintains its sovereignty is just a non-starter for China. And in some business news now, the National Development Council this week announced that the government has allocated 608 billion NT for spending on public infrastructure this year. Now, the move is a bid to stimulate the economy amid the coronavirus vaccine. And according to NDC Minister Gong Ming-shin, Taiwan has been largely successful in its handling of the pandemic, but some industries have been hard hit as a result of the coronavirus, which has prompted the government to invest heavily in infrastructure as a way of boosting employment. Now, what was interesting about this, because you might be a bit bored we're talking about the ndc and funding for infrastructure projects was ross mention of the taiwan airtropolis i thought that fell off the map a long time ago well for political reasons the dpp opposed most aspects of the airtropolis plan that the ma government had proposed to be frankly there was a lot of logic to it uh, this is a an industry that taiwan does have some comparative advantage uh, there, there's a lot of Uh, skilled personnel here for airport repair. It's something that Taiwan has done successfully, although it's lost some market share to other locations in Asia over the years. Uh, But but, uh, there is the supply chain, there is the ecosystem here. So uh, President Ma had the idea of expanding that around the the Taoyuan airport in Taoyuan. The DPP challenged it for various reasons like uh, the land confiscation costs, uh, just, again, mostly politics, I think, since the DPP came up or the Thai government said, oh, we'll just change this area into the Asian Silicon Valley plant. 
Has anyone heard anything much about the Asian Silicon Valley lately? Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of the plan was basically the Aerotropolis plan. I remember uh, at the time in 2016, I even received a, a presentation from the NDC uh, extolling the virtues of the Asian Silicon Valley plan. But I looked at the metadata of the PDF of, of this presentation. It actually said like Aerotropolis all over it. <laughs> so they had clearly just taken the same, the same place. And NDC, if you're listening, I hope you'll stop doing that because it's, it's, it's just not a way, good way of doing things. Uh, but but uh, to be fair to the government, I mean, they have supported the growth of uh, the local uh, air, uh, you know, parts and, and, and repair industry, you know, big company in, in Taichung, AIDC, uh, it does a lot of this uh, military, uh, aircraft military related work upgrades here in Taiwan. Uh, there's also some of this industry in other parts of Taiwan as well. So the government's been supportive. Uh, if they think the Aerotropolis now is, is a good idea, okay, great. I, I, I support it as well. I supported it a few years ago. Uh, hopefully they'll invite President Ma to the opening ceremony. <laughs> So it's interesting then because this seems like an issue on the, which the DPP and the KMT have effectively traded positions. And so this, in terms of development plans, this has also occurred with the uh, the Datan um, liquid, liquefied natural gas terminal. It also uh, happened with meats and porks as well. And that's right. And even even like yeah yeah exactly. And so that's that's another issue. They're not development uh, related. Um, but then it's the question of what uh, it's a question of how far the side machine can sell this idea uh, because right now you know even if this is maybe thinking towards the future and taking advantage of that there's less air traffic now than before and you can take this opportunity to develop. Um, industry, um, it's harder to sell this idea now because the question will be like, well, why do we need this? We're not actually getting all this air traffic. Um, and then I think regarding infrastructure, though, that's, that's it's one of those things because the government has always called on to put in more money to make up, for example, for a loss of COVID-19. Uh, this is a front on which the KMT has attacked the Tsai administration, not doing enough for the economy. And I think a lot of industries will expect to receive aid from the government in this time because of this. Um, you know, Previously, we saw this with, uh, for example, the farming industry uh, regarding the pineapple incident or even pork and, and so forth. Uh, these shock from from uh, outside forces, um, but then the question is, I think, uh, uh, for what infrastructure is it actually that Taiwan needs? And for example, right now with discussion of rationing water, I feel like actually it could be putting money into into, for example, um, making sure that Taiwan has an adequate water supply. But this is a question like this is not come up too much in the discourse. Didn't we have a massive infrastructure spending plan in in, in 2016 and 2017? Yeah, yeah, and it's just come up over and over. So again. why why do we need more? And we know uh, there is a, a, an unfortunate history of of government government spending on infrastructure that uh, often is very wasteful, not necessarily corrupt, because I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't dare posit that corruption occurs in infrastructure spending in Taiwan. Oh, no, 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 never. Uh, but we, we do know that uh, a lot of uh, buildings get built or roads sometimes get built or sometimes airports get built, like the unfortunate airport in Pingdong, uh, that, that, are, that turn out to be completely wasteful. It's just uh, spending to shower money around Taiwan. Uh, it helps local officials uh, get 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 popular with the voters, uh, hand out some jobs to to local people, and oh by the way, local elections are coming up next year, so no surprise <laughs> that we're going to shower some infrastructure spending money around Taiwan. 
Anyway, before we go this week, news that Taiwan ranked 24th globally and the happiest place in East Asia in the 2021 World Happiness Report was greeted here with some, well, less than happy reactions. Now, Taiwan was up one place from a year earlier among 149 countries and regions in the 24th spot, like I said, and the highest basically in East Asia. And that was the highest ranking it's ever got. Now, of course, the World Happiness Report is a publication of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. But, of course, Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations and the report designated Taiwan as a province of China. Needless to say, that irked some people and the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in New York, well, it took to Twitter to say that listing Taiwan under China is false, unacceptable and a blatant disregard of our country's free and vibrant democracy. It also took to Facebook to say that Taiwan's quality of life is based on the country being a vibrant democracy where freedom and human rights upheld and protected, unlike in China and listing Taiwan. Taiwan under China takes away from the work of the Taiwanese people. So, Brian, everyone's happy in Taiwan, province of China. Yeah, I think it's uh, just the latest thing in which Taiwan is unhappy because uh, it is listed as part of China on some index. I think Taiwan is always looking to these indexes to try to assess where it is in the world because of Taiwan's international marginalization. Being high on an index makes the government quite happy, and then it touts it's an achievement. Um, I, in, this, in this case, I find it a bit odd because I don't know how you really calculate happiness. Um, Bhutan, for example, has a notion of gross national happiness, claiming that this is you know something to also metric as measure as a metric in addition to, for example, gross national product um, and so forth. Um, but then and, you know how do you do that and and so forth i think it's just it's a question itself but uh yeah it's 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 a it doesn't surprise me that this comes up even in this context then i think you have to decide are you happy about this or you're not happy are you happy you're the highest in east asia or you're unhappy that uh you're listed as a province of china or don't talk about it at all just ignore ignore it uh, Taiwan gets listed as a province of China by international organizations or uh, various kinds of goofy nomenclature like Taiwan, China, Taiwan, uh, province of China, Chinese Taipei. I mean, we're all familiar with that. You know, maybe the best the best option would be to simply ignore it or publish your own survey to say how happy the people here are. <laughs> but even if you were listed as as the Republic of China and, and uh, clearly as a, a separate country from the People's Republic of China. And notwithstanding that it's the top one in East Asia, I'm, I'm not sure that proclaiming you're the 24th of anything out of 200 or so countries is is anything to get too excited about. I, I mean, you know, it's it's like more, you know, when you when children play a sporting in a sporting event and even though the team loses, you give them you still give them an award, so you say like everybody got an award. So, okay, everybody got an award on this, you're number 24. And that, on that rather glum note from Ross Feingold there, is where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio by the happy Brian Hugh. Good night. And in the studio by the less, not slightly as happy, Ross Feingold. I'm still 24th happiest. There you go. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And there won't be a show next week, April the 2nd, as it's the tomb-sweeping long weekend holiday. But don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app in the meantime, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.